as I think about my work today, what I'm trying to do in some ways is create this place for not everyone necessarily, but for people that want to be a part of creating a different world together. Matt Scanlon is the founder and CEO of And Health, a leading digital health company that helps people reverse chronic diseases. And Health combines specialty care with the ability to help people address the root causes of their conditions, leading to patient outcomes that haven't been possible before. Matt is also a cave explorer and the project leader of Proyecto Mayacoba, an effort to discover document and protect caves in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. Previously, Matt was the co-founder and CEO of Cover My Meds, one of the largest and fastest growing healthcare technology companies in the United States. Cover My Meds was one of digital health's first unicorns when Matt led its sale to McKesson for $1.4 billion. Matt was ranked number 14 U.S. CEO of large companies by Glassdoor and the number three CEO in healthcare. Matt lives in Columbus with his amazing wife and two children. And more importantly, Matt is a dear friend, somebody that I've gotten to know very well and shared a lot of deep conversation with. And we get into Matt's full life journey as we always do in the Gravity Podcast. And I hope you get to see more of Matt than you have in the past. He's really a very thoughtful, kind, caring, and uh a loving man and a great friend. And it was an honor to hang out with him. And I look forward to having him back on the show. I hope you enjoy. All right. We're here today with Matt Scantlin. Matt, it's great to be in a recorded conversation with you. Um, we've had a lot of really good, deep conversations. And, you know, I'm excited to spend time with you always. But, you know, to be able to have this conversation and share it with, the audience uh, is great. So thanks for doing it. Likewise, Brad. Really excited to be here. I, I feel like I've been listening for a time and talking with you privately, and I'm so excited to have the conversation today. Thanks for doing this, and thanks for doing this generally. I really think you've done something important in our community, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that coming from you. And I hope it means something to people. You know, it's funny, and I've talked about this. I just really enjoy being in deep conversation and learning about this shared experience that we're having, you know, being human beings in the world. And I think that other people get some value out of that, which makes me happy. And, you know, as we were just talking before we got started about BJ Fogg, I mean, you and I can get going and talk about a lot <laughs> of things and just, you know, the importance of the people that you surround mm. yourself with and the importance of being able to have a meaningful conversations about anything, whether it's work or life or all of the above and be seen and heard and understood and comforted and supported. All of that just energetically does so much for somebody. So you're one of those people in my life and, you know, it's been great to be able to do that with each other. And, and then hopefully, you know, you press record and people get something out of it. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah, I think what you're doing is so important. I, you've ha just had so many people that I admire tell their story. And I was thinking about this this morning and thinking about how this is not something I would have done a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think you putting these stories out there has helped everyone to 
um, unpeel a little bit. Mm -hmm. And when they do that, we realize that deep down we're all the same people with the same dreams and desires. And I think that's just so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just had this conversation with a friend of mine this morning who's been through a lot and is starting to write about it. And it's healing, I think, to share yourself. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's healing to do that. It has been for me. And then for others, it makes a difference. So anyway, let's talk about <laughs> you. And thank you for saying that. And um, I want to start at the beginning and hear your kind of early childhood family dynamics. I think a lot of people know you in Columbus and across the country and beyond for a lot of things you're doing. And people might not know all the things that you do, but I don't know how many people know your full story. And so let's start at the beginning and maybe you can just tell me a little bit about those early days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was... Born and raised here in Columbus, born in 1979, which puts me right between the Gen X and the millennials. And in some ways, I think not being part of one of those has maybe been a, a big influence on me. And maybe I'll come back to that. I'm an identical twin. My brother Pete is just a super, super important influence in my life. I have a sister, Susan, who is incredibly inspiring and I've learned so much from her. And then two really great parents that believed in us and were so important to everything that we became and still are really important. And they're, all of us are here in Columbus and that's a really special thing. I will come back to my childhood, but I also have a wife and two boys, six years old and 10 years old. And that's a really important part of who I am too. Mm -hmm. I know it is. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing because just knowing a little bit about, you know, your relationship with Pete and your family, um, you do have a family that's very close and connected and in town. And I'd like to learn a little bit more about what it was like for you as a kid and kind of how you were raised and if it's always been that way or how it went for you, at least in the early stages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... Growing up, while I had so much support, um, I also had lots of challenges. I'm dyslexic. My memories as a kid, I spent most of my childhood years really, really shy, really struggling in school, really actually rebelling against the world, I think. And maybe this is who I am now. What I always wanted to do was create my own world. And one of the importances of my family, I think for me, and with Pete in particular, and I double-checked this with Mara this morning as I was thinking about this, having that person that was that close allowed us to kind of create our own world. And that's basically what we did as kids. Mm. We um, were each other's best friend. We invented stories. We invented this world that we created. And I think that idea of being able to create this place that is maybe better, or at least better for me than I'm perceiving the outside world has always been a big part of what inspires me. And as I think about my work today, that's really what I'm trying to do mm -hmm. in some ways is create this place for not everyone necessarily, but for people that want to be a part of creating a different world together. Mm -hmm. And in my early years, I had a chance to do that with Pete. And to have someone else to do that rather than to do it on your own mm -hmm. was really important. And then to have the support of my parents who 
said, you know what, that that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and really valued that sort of individuality of being able to do that and believed in us was a big part of what we did. Mm-hmm. So my early memories are, you know, occasionally having a friend, mm-hmm. but mostly having Pete. And that, that went on through most of elementary school. Mm-hmm. And eventually we started to branch out a little bit and we had a period in college where we kind of said, you know what, let's do our own thing. And I think our work is, is in some ways quite similar and in some ways quite different mm-hmm. and probably a reflection of people with literally the same DNA, mm-hmm. the same environment, so the same nature and nurture, mm-hmm. trying to find their way and be able to come back together and have a shared experience too mm-hmm. around entrepreneurship, but also to find a different playing field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I want to talk about that, but I want to just back up because I'm curious in just hearing you talk about this. It's fascinating to me that kind of same DNA, you know, the same nature and nurture. That's pretty unique. I mean, you know, unique to twins. And, you know, you talked about the dyslexia and some of the other things that made it difficult for you as a kid. Um, but you have this twin that you can really fall back on. Uh, maybe you just elaborate like a mm-hmm. little bit on the experience of being a twin and especially for you, how comforting or important or how helpful that mm-hmm. was, you know, for you in those early stages. I know still it is to this day, but as a young kid who maybe was having a harder time, I can imagine it was really important. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe experiencing the world through the lens of dyslexia or through the lens of hey, I'm shy and I'm different than at least what I perceive the world to be is a lonely place. And I have always empathized with the other people that have seen the world in that way. The What was really unique about my experience is I had someone to say, okay, we don't necessarily love this idea of sort of get in line and do what you're told. And I, I think I'm probably diminishing the reality of what that was. And as I've matured, I've come to maybe a more positive experience of that. But as a young person, that's sort of how I saw school. Mm-hmm. That's how I saw what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And to have someone to opt out of that with, and then to say, hey, the, what you're doing by opting out and doing your own thing, that's not crazy. That's actually cool. And mm-hmm. I'll do it with you. Yeah. That's a superpower. Superpower, right? And then, you know, your parents uh, you sound like they were supportive of that too which is like double superpower, right? Now you have got a sidekick and, you know, like a support bubble that allows you to really experiment with life outside of what, you know, this typical normal structure is. Um, And maybe you can just speak to your parents a little bit more and, you know, who they were and, you know, how, I don't know if this is in hindsight, if you've talked about it at Mm -hmm. all, but, you know, kind of how they were thinking about you as children. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And probably so many different layers to unpack. My parents are really, really smart people, really, really conscientious people. They they both were deeply influenced by the Quaker religion. And in fact, my brother and I were the first generation that didn't go to a school called Earlham College, which which is kind of an ethos that permeated our world. My grandfather was a professor there. My parents went there. My sister went there. 
actually, too. My dad is still involved. And the ethos of that belief system, I would say, is collectivism. And I, w- I want to separate it maybe from the just beliefs and instead from the values that I was raised as a kid because it, it wasn't a deeply religious household, mm-hmm. but it was a deeply values-oriented mm-hmm. household that deeply values-oriented household that ended up creating a, a profound influence on me mm-hmm. in positive and pr- probably in retrospect negative ways. And in some ways, a big part of what I do today is a reaction to that loving some of it and embracing some of it and maybe trying to find a, a new path for, for myself in, in some ways too. Mm-hmm. But what I was taught was that we should give something back to the world. Mm-hmm. And I was taught that while there is value in creativity and, and individualism, there's also value in community. Mm-hmm. And doing the right thing matters. But also a sense of, in some ways, maybe non-conformity. Uh, mm-hmm. Because my parents grew up as progressive people at a progressive time. And that's a big part of that movement as well, mm-hmm. is um, human rights and all of those things. And so growing up in that environment, I was you know, exposed to those values mm-hmm. where hard work is a big part of it. Community is a big part of its service mm-hmm. or duty, which is a word that I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about over the years. And you and I have talked about a lot too. Mm-hmm. And, and all of those things were big influences. The most important thing perhaps that I had from my parents was that they believed in us mm-hmm. and they supported us. And they did the thing that's, that I now as a parent see is perhaps the hardest, which is they put an incredible amount of time into us. Mm-hmm. That time is the one thing we never get more of. And I'm just so inspired when I see the way that they spend their time, the way they spent their time with me, when there could have been a lot of other things that, that would have been easier, mm-hmm. especially, you know, I was probably an unrewarding kid mm-hmm. for many years, the way that they just kept working with us. Mm-hmm. Boy, was that's really, really uh, heartwarming. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot there I'd like to unpack with you. And I really get what you're saying when you talk about the values, not the religious aspect or peace, um, separating those things. Because I think oftentimes the values that are embodied in various religions are lost because of the religious mm-hmm. peace. And there's a lot of value in religion if you just focus on the values. As you describe, you know, the um, values around community and even the part of your parents being conscientious and really spending time with their children, believing in you. These are like home run values (laughs) to have as a parent and to try to impart in in your children. And, you know, you've talked about maybe just a little bit the benefits of growing up, you know, in that belief system and maybe some of the things that um, you had to later, you know, unpack and rebel against or find your own path. And there's a lot there in religion and communities of high values and beliefs that can really kind of land with some and not with others. And so I'm kind of curious just to hear more about how that influenced you. 
but both good and bad as as you really are still in those you know teenage years before you're you know off to college and starting to find your own way but when you're under your parents roof and you're in those elementary school and teenage years and you're in a family system that is really of high values high beliefs you know um very conscientious about how they want to create the lives that you and your family have. What was that like for you? And was it something that at the time you appreciated or that you were rebelling against? You know, tell me more about the experience of it. Mm -hmm. Well, the governance unit of that belief system is the community meeting. And that's a place where the members of the community come together to make decisions. And it's inherently a non-hierarchical, egalitarian governance system. That's another way also of saying that mostly what you're doing is what other people decided. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because we wanted to explore the world and get out of line and pursue our own path. And that was expressed in many different ways. I, while I love physical activity and doing physical things, I remember not being able to wait until I could quit the team sports, mm-hmm. right? It was like something that I looked forward to, you know, a point in time here where I can stop doing that. At the same time, I loved to pursue things that allowed individual learning with other people, not necessarily just on my own, but with other people, but being able to go outside of the organization so to speak. As a kid, I got really into bikes as an example and spent most of my, my, from middle school all the way through college, spent my years working at bike shops, Mm -hmm. which was a chance to, and if you have spent much time around bike shops and fewer and fewer people these days have, because a lot of that's moved online, bike shops are this great community of people that I just think are interesting. Mm -hmm. And one of the really cool things as a kid was being able to basically hang out with young adults Mm. at bike shops and, you know, build stuff and try stuff and go hang out on campus Mm -hmm. and go camping Mm -hmm. in on the weekends and explore. Mm -hmm. And that was an incredible thing. And my parents supported me in doing that. I remember my, my first job at the bike shop, I became a good bike mechanic but a lot younger than most people thought you should be a bike mechanic. And so I remember my mom spending hours and hours and hours figuring out how to get around the work permit <laughs> rules for, for me to have a job legally at a bike shop. And so they supported me in doing that. And I loved the opportunity to basically learn on my own. Mm-hmm. And all of my hobbies today, I'm still really into that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. All of my hobbies today, I hadn't realized this until relatively recently, but they're really nichey things, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, cave, yeah. cave exploration. And, it, and in a way, I think maybe what I'm trying to do subconsciously mm-hmm. is find the, because I haven't wanted to be in a box, I haven't wanted to define myself by one identity. But yet we live in a world where that's generally what, what's expected and what we do. So I've been trying to find kind of the smallest atomic unit that I can be a part of. Mm. It fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about that, you know, as I was listening to you talk and, and I know you are um, unique, you know, in, in my life, you, you know, there are 
you know, many others like you in that you have a desire to really go really deep into whatever it is that you're into. Mm-hmm. And you've told me in the past about bike shops and your love of bikes and the kind of culture of it. And, and I know about the cave exploration, which we'll talk about, whether it be in business or anything that you're involved in, you know, if you're going to do it, you really want to understand it, know it, excel at, you know, a very high level um, and or go all the way there. It's not even about an accomplishment. It's about like a deep, deep, literally deep dive into whatever it is you're going to do. And I'm wondering just you know, how far back that goes. Was there something before the bike shop or, or how do you see that connection to the family values and the community and the, you know, anything that came from the environment of your family? Is it just you, who you are? Have you always been like that? You know, where does that come from? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as I think about the family values and what I learned from my parents on this, and you're right, what I like to do is sort of go really, really deep mm-hmm. and learn. Mm-hmm. And then work really hard at climbing that learning curve and trying to and try to add something to that community. And I, I do think that came from my parents. Mm-hmm. And it's that value of hard work, of really recognizing that to do anything well enough is just is simply hard. Mm-hmm. And it simply takes a lot of time. And I, I, w- one of the things I, I do think about my place in the world today is being one of the people that's willing to do what it takes to try to advance something. Mm-hmm. And if you look around the, the world, this water bottle, mm-hmm. probably, was, it, probably a lot of people involved in creating it. But at the end of the day, someone took ownership of making this, getting this thing into our hands. Mm-hmm with with um coherency around the design mm-hmm. and an economic model that works and the right colors mm-hmm. and there's so many things that went into that and it was a lot of work and one of the ways that I've tried to make my mark on the world has been to just say I'm willing to be one of the people that does the work that does that and my parents taught me that starting in school Mm-hmm. where if you're going to learn, and I had to learn this as a dyslexic kid, is basically you just need to do the work. Mm-hmm. And a big part of g- getting through that, and my kids are dyslexic too, and I don't want to say that there aren't real, there are incredible challenges there, but I think I sort of reversed dyslexia through that work, mm-hmm. through the support of my parents, mm-hmm. through eventually just working on it mm-hmm. and recognizing that we don't need to accept our limitations. We can reverse them mm-hmm. and grow through them. And yeah. that's how I look at many of the things that I try to take on is to say, I'm unconsciously incompetent at this. I'm going to learn what I'm going to eventually learn. It's kind of what I don't even know. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just going to go on that journey and try to and eventually get to the point of saying, I'm going to be one of the people that's willing to do restaurant quality cooking mm-hmm. in this subject. Mm-hmm. And that mean, that might mean staying late and working really hard at it. And that's one of the things that I learned from my parents and my grandparents too, who I think probably taught my parents that. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, let me ask you this, because I've actually been thinking a lot about this for myself and I agree with you. I've I've had the learning that I could learn 
a lot of things that I never thought I could. And for me, that, you know, is clearly attached to how I was raised and some things that I told myself and maybe things that I had heard, but, you know, ultimately I decided were true. And a lot of people do this. They'll say like, I'm not artistic or Mm. I'm not musically inclined or I can't hear the music the way he does. And, and especially around creativity, that, that seems to be, you know, where people really start to tell those stories. And I think you can extend creativity outside of the fine arts and really into creation of anything. Mm. And, you know, you uh, described this early period where you were empowered to really create a reality. Mm. So you're constantly in creation one way or another. And that's, you know, what I believe. And I've learned over recent years as I've returned to things that I always wanted to do but didn't think that I could, like painting and playing music. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, even making money. I didn't even long after I had made money realize that I was good at doing that. (laughs) You know, I thought maybe I had just gotten lucky. And so what I'm hearing you say is really you can create whatever it is that you want. And it's a matter of doing the work. And it, and it really comes down to commitment and work. And so I guess I'm curious for you, what was the reality that you decided to create you know, at that kind of stage in your life? And how did you decide what it was that you were going to pour yourself into and do that work? with. And maybe that'll kind of take you, you know, into the next stages of life too. But, you know, I am curious, how did you decide to commit to certain things that you then were going to do the work Mm -hmm. with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think you're right on. And I I think what you have said about creations is beautiful and and true. Because I really, if there's one identity that I have had for myself, it's been to not have a fixed identity. And to recognize that coupling basically mindset with work, we can become anything we want to be. And I'll relate this to our our new company, which is really around the idea that that health is not a fate, Mm -hmm. that we can manifest the expression of our health or our sickness largely through our own behavior. And that concept in so many ways, whether it's health or whether it's the work that we do, or whether it's the relationships that we have, or whether it's the hobbies that we engage in. I really believe in this idea of being able to chart our own way and not being limited by how we were born. And in fact, I think that's this universal, beautiful idea because so much of human progress has come from when we do not necessarily have to have the lives that were defined by our parents. Mm-hmm whether that's class or social equity or skill or genetics. And that's just, I think, such a hopeful idea. And I've tried to live, that's been the motivator for me throughout my life and the motivator of my work too, because I tr- what we're really trying to do in our work, the businesses or the organizations that we create, the projects that I do, the Cave Exploration Project, is basically to say, hey, we can do... We believe that people can do so much more 
than the world thinks that they can. Mm-hmm. Boy, and we're going to be the place that does that. And that really, I've tried to say, let me be a pillar of that. Yeah, in my own life. Yeah, boy, that's great. Yeah, th- th- this is you know kind of getting to something that I'm feeling is really an important part of my work and you know, what needs to come up on the podcast and, you know, what I'm now writing about and, you know, really seeing over and over and over again, which is that our lives really can be learned from and used to create in the world as a expression of ourselves to serve other people. Mm. And that's, you know, exactly what I'm hearing you say. And I want to talk about Anne Health. I want to just back up before we do that. But, you know, I, I do want to say, because I don't want to lose track of this thought, our youngest son was born with a vision impairment. And uh, he's lived with it pretty much as is for the last 16 years. And recently, I learned about something called vision therapy. Mm-hmm which is really getting to what you're talking about, which is that we don't necessarily have to be attached to an identity. And there is a a really fascinating thing emerging around kind of the mindset and health. And that things that we have been told couldn't be fixed or improved or changed um, in fact, maybe can in ways that are really outside of the traditional medical system. Mm-hmm. And sadly, those things are often really discarded as like um, less than, mm-hmm. right? They, they're not really academically valued. They're not necessarily published in the same places, you know? I, I know you know what I mean. And so it makes it even harder for what really actually might be going on and actually the real root issue Mm -hmm. um, to come to the forefront. But it is, and that's what you're doing. Yeah, so so much to unpack there. What you're saying is I think the power of mindset, which is another way of simply saying harnessing the mind-body connection Mm -hmm. combined with the power of participation. Because the pathology of so much of the health that defines us today, that is to say chronic diseases, diseases like, for example, that your son, things that last Mm -hmm. for a long period of time, so much of the pathology of those is actually the body's reaction to our environment, our behavior. Mm -hmm. And yet we're frequently finding ourselves in a healthcare system that doesn't have the tools or the time to address the behavior in the environment. Mm -hmm. And that's not... You know, I think there's there can be almost a tyranny of evidence. There's lots of ways that evidence get created generally around the economic value of the thing that might be being described. And there are lots of these things that we've known for the doctors know work have known work for thousands of years mm-hmm. that don't have the formal evidence base because there hasn't been the economic value. And then there's lots of things that what we found that the that doctors and the healthcare system know work, but aren't really in the tool belt because we don't have the tools and the time to believe that patients will do them. And so much of what I think that we're trying to bring to the world is actually about the belief that people 
will participate if we help them. Mm-hmm. And part of that is motivation. Mm-hmm. Part of that is simply being told, hey, you've gone through your life thinking that this is mm-hmm. something that is going to define you. Maybe even some people that were part of your healthcare said, this is now your identity. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be that. And so it, it starts there, but then it, it goes to, and we were ta- mentioning BJ Fogg, it goes to making that change easier. Right? Because if you combine motivation or mindset with making it easier, you get behavior that used to not happen. And one of the things that's been the most surprising to me in the work that we're doing now at Ant Health has been that when we say, hey, 80% of most of these chronic illnesses, 80% of the achievable outcome is actually the behavior environment of the patient. That's actually no longer even controversial. And I think we're at the very forefront of a renaissance in our healthcare system Mm -hmm. of recognizing that what's still relatively controversial is whether patients will change. Mm -hmm. And my experience has been that of the about a million doctors in this country, there isn't, there probably isn't a single one of them that doesn't want to help people. And doctors are pretty smart and they learn what works. Mm -hmm. And if I'm a doctor that has largely been part of a system that can't provide the tools or the time to help patients to participate in their behavior, I have a different set of tools. Mm-hmm. And what doctors that we have found know will re- relatively reliably work in a world where I'm going to see the patient once every 18 months is writing a prescription, mm-hmm. right? Because 18 months from now, it's likely that the patient comes back and they're going to be taking that prescription. If I try to have a conversation with the patient about nutrition or about sleep or managing stress or addressing almost any other root cause, a musculoskeletal issue, a fatigue issue. If I try to have that discussion with the patient, because the patient isn't going to be supported, the chances that they come back 18 months from now, having magically adopted all of the behaviors that would need to be achieved to to deliver on that aspiration, that's all the time I really have for, the chances are pretty low. Mm -hmm. And so as a rational person that's actually trying to do the best I can with what I have, that's, what, that's my tool. Yeah. And so it's really about giving those tools to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is an interesting thing because you make a good point about the participation and the patient. You know, will the patient participate in a way that actually has them doing the work? I mean, we were talking about hard work, right? Yeah it's pretty common sense that people know about what to do for diet and, you know, exercise and sleep even at like a very base level, right? I mean, sure, there's all sorts of food sensitivities Mm -hmm. and, you know, ways to kind of get in there and look at it, you know, individually and decide what works and, right, I have the privilege to, to do that stuff. But you could really basically look at you know, whether or not you're eating fast food or how many calories you're eating and how long you're sleeping and how much you drink and whatever, right? There's some base things that are common knowledge, yet, you know, that's not what our society does. Even though they see everybody, we see everybody having, you know, heart failure and diabetes and cancer and illness everywhere, including mental health. And the question is, I guess we're getting to end health, but I, and I do want to, I do still want to back up with you a little bit afterwards, but the question is how, and maybe, you know, you can just say how and health is really aiming at solving that problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's it starts with being the uh, the doctor that can help the patient with a condition that they care about. And so the way that we launched was to start with conditions that are associated with really high motivation of patients. And one of the major motivators of is pain, but also a lack of access and a lack of success in the healthcare services that patients have experienced before. And that's why we started with migraine, which is a neurological condition that impacts 40 million people. It historically, most of those 40 million people, if you asked them what their experience has been, they would say, I have been dismissed. I haven't been able to get the help that I need. And the reason is that they're living in effect, no matter who you are or where you live, you're essentially living in a care desert because for those 40 million people, there's 2,000 headache specialists. And so we start by solving access and we provide access to a great specialist that understands how to achieve the standard of care for that condition that allows us to write prescriptions, to do imaging, to do labs. But then we go beyond that. And once we've established the trust and the connectivity with the patient, and we've made healthcare move from something that's historically been episodic and on-premise to something that's continuous and virtual, we use that, that platform that we have that connectivity to guide the patient through a disease reversal journey. And for migraine, that takes about three months. And at the end of three months, we're going to have, on average, helped patients reduce their migraine days by 80%, which is about two times the standard of care when you're simply doing medications. And we've done that with a net promoter score, which is how we measure the, the customer experience. We've done that with a net promoter score of 90, which is a world-class customer experience. And I think that that speaks to it worked and you met me where, where I was and you solved a significant problem. There are many conditions mm -hmm. that our healthcare system today doesn't have the tools and the time to treat mm -hmm. in that way that are actually incredibly addressable. And there's a huge gap between what the existing standard of care is achieving and what's actually possible. Mm -hmm. And we call that concept disease reversal, mm -hmm. which is getting patients to the point where they can have the lives that they want to have. Yeah. In many cases, it's remission. In some cases, it's, I now can do what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And for our healthcare system, it's getting to the point where we're addressing the escalating burden of these diseases in cost and productivity in human potential. We're addressing that bird, that growing burden not by trying to restrict access to care, which is, has, has historically been what financial sponsors of our healthcare system really do as a way to, to, to restrict the escalation of that burden. We've given a new tool, which is to say, let's get patients to the point where they simply need less healthcare by addressing the root causes. And, and so at a system level, disease reversal means getting people to the point where they don't need as much mm. rather than getting to the point where we just get better at saying no to things that they need. Yeah, which, you know, is a, a bit of an uphill battle because that means if they're not needing as much, that means somebody isn't as, as busy or as profitable, right? I mean, that gets into a whole yeah. another aspect. So, so I have some questions around the kind of mental health side of this, but I want to back up and just outline your path to yeah. this, Yeah. right? Because I, I can see the connectivity already to, you know, this idea that you could create your own world, right? That's what you're now doing over here where it's like, well, 
wait a minute, we could create a world that's very different than the one that we're living in where we reverse disease, we prevent disease, we treat people differently. I mean, it's a whole new world and, and a better one, really. Let's talk about your path to that. You know, you, I'm going to back up to the college part where, you know, you and Pete decide that you're going to explore different things and, and go your own way, you know, to some degree. And, and that then also plays out in your career yeah. to some degree. I mean, I know you're, you're very involved in each other's work. Back up, you know, to the to that stage where you know you go off to college and and you know what what happens to the Matt world, <laughs> you know then. Yeah, and thanks for taking us back there. You can't help but and this has been you know I'm demonstrating my that personality of kind of all in. Yeah, is you, oh, I, you just can't help going to those things. Well, it's just because you love it and you're passionate exactly, about it. and that's what's going to come up for you. Exactly, you know? yeah. I, I, it's my favorite hobby right now. Yeah, yeah. I got it. <laughs> I got it. I get it. I yeah. love hearing you talk about it. Yeah, yeah. But but going back to college, um, so when I got to college, I, um, I had had a couple of different experiences. I'd had a, a what I would describe as a pretty negative school experience, partly my own immaturity in a failure to recognize that part of life is just until, until you can part of life is sometimes going with the flow and that my, I, I now recognize that, that part of that school experience was needlessly challenging, but also part of it was that I wasn't able to define my own path. And so when I got to college, I really adopted a new mindset and I said, you know what? I'm here. I'm going to do the best that I can. And the, the greater variety of options that I have is going to allow me to do a little bit less in line and a little bit more charting, charting my own path. And so I went to Ohio State. I started there because I thought I'd... And, and in some ways, my evolution in college is actually, I would say, maybe a shift from moving away from what other people I think wanted me to do to what I wanted to do. And so I started in college as an engineer. And the reason I started as an engineer was partly I was probably pretty good at that stuff, or at least people thought I'd be pretty good at that stuff. My grandfather had been a civil engineer and we didn't talk about him, but he, my mom's dad, he started a, an engineering firm that is, is, still exists, is in Cincinnati. It's called KZF. They do really cool mostly civic work, a lot with UC. They did the Contemporary Art Center in Cincinnati. He was a huge influence on me. Well, we talked about the upbringing with my parents. Almost everything I said about them, I would say about him mm -hmm. too. And, but he really, really wanted me to be an engineer. And he, I remember college visits and coming up here and him, him you know, wanting to go see the engineering building. He lived in Cincinnati, so it wasn't a, he spent a fair amount of time here. And so I started in engineering. And before long, I realized that while I liked some parts of engineering, it, it wasn't actually what I was truly interested in, in, in studying. But I was good at the science. And at that point, I was also getting really good grades. And one of the things that happens when you start getting really good grades in college is people start talking to you about going to grad school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember as a, you know, I, I switched over and, and I said, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to become an MD, PhD. I'm going to be a doctor that also does research. And I, I had a research project on West Campus with funding 
I had a, an office over there and I sort of went all in mm-hmm. on that. And I remember my colleagues today call this the fish dust moment. <laughs> I, re- I remember at some point being in the lab and it would take too long to, to get exactly what my research was on. But basically what I was doing is I was taking fish that had been ground up and I was bombing it in a calorimeter to determine the energy density of it. Hmm. And I'm covered in fish dust and it's two in the morning and my friends are having a party <laughs> on campus. <laughs> and I'm in the a lab on West Campus. Uh-huh. And I just had this moment of, of seeing my whole world narrowing down to a pinprick because as you become more and more specialized and I value this, the world needs this. Yeah. But, but it wasn't me. Yeah. And so here I am just zooming in a thousand percent to this one thing. And I said, gosh, that's not what I'm going to do. So, okay. So now I'm going to be, I'm going to do more of the doctor part. And so I started to think about that. I took the MCAT and then another setback happened. And I, I ended up in the, I was a math tutor and I, I was tutoring someone in her house and I woke up, got really, really dizzy, woke up in an ambulance and spent a couple days at OSU hospital. And for the first time experienced the healthcare system, not as a researcher, but as a patient. Mm -hmm. And I had deep admiration for the work that was being done there for the doctors that were conducting the work, the nurses, everyone. But I also said, gosh, I just can't see myself being great at this. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was still super, super shy, not very expressive at all. And I simply said, my bedside manner simply won't be that great. And so that, you know, that was another moment of saying, gosh, I was on this path that was largely the path that people had told me I should be on. They they all had the best possible intentions for me. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, it was a path that, that I wasn't sure about. And in many ways, I was on because it seemed like a hill to climb that the world valued. Mm -hmm. And I, then and there in the hospital, I I realized that probably wasn't for me either. Mm -hmm. And what I realized, the one thing I was confident about was that I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how much of your pursuit of the you know MD PhD thing and the down to the pinprick and you know kind of the maybe losing sight of yourself even just as you get embodied in the work mm-hmm. how much of that do you think comes from the you know stories at least that you told yourself how much of it came from the learning about um service and community and, you know, being conscientious and the values. Is this the part that kind of took you to places that Mm -hmm. maybe weren't you? Yeah. Does that have a role in kind of how you ended up in some of those lanes that, you know, weren't really who you were? Yeah. No, I, I think that that's right. What I think that the nuance here is that while I think that I have spent a lot of my life trying to perform for other people, trying to serve, trying to do my duty. That was a belief system that was created by that environment that I grew up in. I also think that if I went back to my parents and I said, hey, I really don't want to do this, Mm -hmm. they would be totally fine. And so a big part of my life has been realizing actually that that thing that I think I need to do is actually me. 
Yeah. It's not them. Right. And sometimes I think it's easy to put it on other people. Yeah. And I remember this when I, when I made a transition out of a, a job recently and, and we can go there in a moment. I remember like having this, this instinct from being a kid of, you know, learning to serve the community and do good work. And then talking to my parents and realizing that they didn't think I needed to do anything. Mm-hmm. It wasn't I needed to go do another thing. Mm-hmm. And realizing, and, and in a way that was kind of the master stroke, in realizing that all of those things that, you th- that really were the shadows of the strengths, I think in many ways in, in my life, all of those things were in my head. Mm-hmm. And this was one of those examples where, you know, I changed my mind about what I was going to do, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. It was fine. Mm-hmm. Everyone still loved me. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. My parents still loved me and they still supported me. And, and in fact, you know, who knows what would have happened had I had done that. M- maybe things would have been even better, but they've been pretty good. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, you know, because it is nuanced. Conditioning and the environment, intentions might be, you know, pure, but um, certain things get said or or heard or absorbed, and we make them mean a lot. Mm -hmm. And we can really end up having that take over our lives. And yet, at the end of the day, Katie really, you know, is is challenged me on this quite a bit. You know, we have choice. Mm -hmm. And I maintain, but it's not that easy. If it were, everybody would do it. And this does kind of take us back to the end health conversation. It's, it, you're right. You know, we do have a tendency to blame or to, to put it on others. But when at the end of the day, really, it is, you know, yours. And it's a matter of having the strength, the courage, the clarity, the, you know, motivation, whatever, everything that it takes to actually move into you know, yourself and do the work that you know you can and and probably should do. But it's hard. It's It's hard. hard, It's hard, but but so important because no work is done more poorly than work that's done as a favor. And in a way, when we're on someone else's path, whether it's our parents or our teachers or the expectations of others, we're doing the world a favor and we're bringing the mindset that I'm not here because I want to, I'm here because I have to. And that removes the generosity and the love and the heart from the work. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you care about doing good work, and ultimately I realized I do care about doing good work, that's not my parents. They taught me the value of it. They helped me and supported me when I wasn't doing good work. But coming back and doing what I'm doing now was my choice. Mm-hmm. And it was really important that I got to the point where that I stared into the abyss long enough and got beyond the expectations of others that I needed to wake up one day and go, there's nothing I want to do more than climb that hill again, mm-hmm. building a new company. And if you that, and now you're doing it for someone else, you can't bring the love to it. Yeah. I feel honored to have watched you move through that. And I think, you know, in the interest of time, I think it's, it kind of works out well because I actually don't think that, you know, we need to spend a lot of time on Cover My Meds, but I don't want to entirely skip over it either. I mean, yeah. you created a multi-billion dollar organization that, you know, really was transformative in a lot of ways and, you know, had a, a huge impact on you and your life and 
you know, that's maybe what a lot of people know you for. So I don't want to skip over it, but I, I do really want to focus on this, this piece here, which is the, how you moved from that to and health and mm. kind of that period in between. But, but maybe you want to just say a little bit about cover my meds. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm incredibly proud of what we did at cover my meds. We helped a lot of people. And I, th I do think that we, we had some success creating that world for people that wanted to do something that was bigger than they were told you should be wanting to do. And in that way, I, I think about it as, you know, I'm proud of what the company did, but I'm really especially proud of how. And it wasn't just me. One of the incredible things that I learned at Cover My Meds was the value of being on a journey with people that you care about. And as I think about really charting the future of my life, it's really how can I be on an adventure with people that I care about doing something that's really important. But in some ways also, as I look at the business, it was the ultimate how. A lot of the innovation was around how do you do this thing? And that was really important. And I think what was called for at the time, because no one, what we did was we automated the prior authorization process, which turns out to be a lot more important than people realized. But also when you're a kid, you want to be an astronaut, not be in the prior authorization process. And so, <laughs> right. right. And so a lot of what we were doing was about creating that environment mm -hmm. where people and being that place for people that could be an expression of, of doing more, of being on a journey, of, of realizing that work doesn't have to be this cold place where get in line and do what you're told. It doesn't have to be a place that only does what the bare minimum that it can get away with. It can bring a humanity or a generosity to the way that we interact with customers, with partners, with employees, with the whole industry. Mm -hmm. And that those are ideas that not just me, but I had the privilege of my dad joined us really early on. I had a chance to work with him. And many of these were ideas that he helped shared. My leadership team, who from the very beginning, all was an expression of these ideas. And many of those people have, are at our new company. Mm -hmm. And we're yeah. doing the same thing. And so it was an incredible experience. And I learned a lot from it. Oh, yeah. I know. I know. What an important part of your journey and really major. And yet, like, it's interesting because, you know, I drove by the headquarters today on my way here and I'm seeing now the two buildings coming together. And, you know, it just has you all over it. Your vision for creating this, you know, new reality and solving problems and making things better and service and duty and the engineering thing, even mm -hmm. your love of, of aesthetics and design and community. I mean, it's all there. And yet you walked away from it all. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, you know, is really hard for people to do. Mm -hmm. Because you built something, if you want to talk about identity, I mean, you could have easily made that your identity for the rest of your career. And instead, you know, you walked away and took time to do a little bit of nothing, <laughs> uh, a lot of cave diving, reconnecting with your family. Just talk a little bit about the decision to walk away from it and, you know, how that period of your life, you know, was really important for you to come to the realization that you did want to get back in and, and do it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It took me a while when we sold the business. Even at that point, I knew how important mindset was. 
and so I said, you know what? I, I have a job to do. We've made a commitment about to our people that work here, to to our partners about what what we're going to do. And I said, I'm just going to do this work and see how it goes. But at a certain point, and it wasn't that long after the deal, I just knew that wasn't my highest calling anymore. And one of the one of the things I've learned to to do is to pay attention to how I feel when I'm doing the work. You know, if I'm pushing an idea I no longer believe in, I realize the idea isn't good yet. If I'm trying to create energy in my own self about something, it's just not me anymore. And at a certain point, it, I started to realize that. And, and I think I could diagnose it in a lot of ways, but maybe the ugly reality is that part of, and, and the conceit of creating this world is that it also does have to kind of be mine. And I want it to be a part of, I want it to be mine in the sense that I'm with people who I know deeply share those values or, and the vision around what world we're trying to create. And at a certain point, when you're, once you've sold a business to a very large company, you, you just simply have to say objectively, the reality is that it's not ours anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't judge. I don't, in fact, one of the great, learning moments for me was to let it go mm-hmm. and to say there's a profound beauty in this not being ours anymore. Mm-hmm. And whether it thrives or whether it doesn't, that's actually part of life. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the, the space that is there for those of us that create new, it almost needs to be a part of life. I eventually learned to let go yeah, and to say, you know what, rather than, fi-, and I was just fighting and fighting and fighting. And, and rather than doing that, I just said, you know what, this thing can go two ways. It can do incredibly well, and that's awesome. It can be like a star exploding where a couple thousand amazing people that did something special go out into the world and go make their mark. And both, we win both ways. Mm-hmm. And so that, that allowed me to go. Mm-hmm. And it, it took a while. Yeah. It was hard. But when I left, one of the things I, I realized was how important it was to reconnect with who I was mm-hmm. and to find that next journey. And I tried to bring to it the idea that that journey could be very, very different actually than what it was in the past. And in fact, one, a funny thing happens when you have that kind of a a ride is you yourself start to think differently. You know, Matt, you know, in my head in, in that moment in late 2019, Matt's a really great startup executive. Mm-hmm. Matt's a really great entrepreneur. Matt's a software healthcare technology person. That's true. I was. But I've also been a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. I've been a dyslexic kid. Mm-hmm. I've been a bike mechanic. Mm-hmm. I've been a sailor. I've been a cave diver. I've been, and I said, let's, let's see who Matt should be next. And I tried to say, it doesn't have to be that business. It doesn't have to be business. Um, and one of the things that I was all along, but didn't get to spend as much time on, was I'm also a father and a husband. And in fact, one of the things that we don't talk, I think, probably enough about entrepreneurship is the cost of it to those that, that we love and, and that love us, who really at a certain point, we can say whether this is right or not, but at least in my journey, and they take second place. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about, and I did, about how, you know, I'm needed here. 
I, th- this is the part that's not optional and the family's okay. But I realized that I, I and wanted to reconnect and to make them first too. I knew I was going to do that. And then I was going to say, what, what journey calls on me? I'm going to try a lot of things. And I, I said, I'll, I will know it when I wake up one day and there's nothing I want to do more than this next thing. And so I started by spending time, the pandemic happened too, and that probably changed the character of this journey a lot mm-hmm. because many of the things that I was planning on doing, I, I wasn't able to do. I could see myself traveling all over the world. Mm-hmm. I could see myself doing a bunch of stuff. I thought I was going to do a cave exploration project somewhere in the world as an example. And all of a sudden I was in Mexico and couldn't leave. Mm-hmm. And that was at the beginning of, of 2020. And I was down there with the friends that I dive with. And we said, you know what? Um, let's explore the property here where we live. Mm-hmm. And that ended up being an incredible journey. And I tried to be open to that, to saying, maybe I'll do this forever. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll be a cave explorer. Maybe that's the next thing. And I, I ended up realizing that, I, well, I love it. And in fact, it's one of the few things I, I love more in year 11 than I did in year one. Mm-hmm. It's not the thing that I want to do full-time yeah. forever. What I ended up realizing really, and it took a long time, I was more tired at month four than I was at month one because it simply took that long for the adrenaline mm-hmm. to wear off. Mm. But, but eventually, and it was probably about fall of you know nine months in or so, I started to remember what it was I loved so much about entrepreneurship and, a, and about business. It's really the ultimate game mm. for me of learning. And it's an infinite game in the sense that we can always learn more. There's, it's so complex and nuancy. The level of work that we can do with people that adds a dimension, the, the richness of it, the complexity of it makes it simply my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. And I eventually got to the point where I woke up and and truly said, there's simply nothing I'd rather do than build another business. And I'd been dreaming about, I kind of already knew what that would be, actually, because going for 10 years, I'd been thinking about what ended up becoming Ant Health. And pretty early on, I, I was able to get started with some folks that, that have helped us build this. And they dramatically improved my thinking mm-hmm. about it and, and shaped it. But I kind of knew this idea of we're going to help people to participate in their healthcare by recognizing that we can have the life we want rather than the life that, rather than the fate was the core idea that, that inspired me. And, and today we have a company now of people that to a person probably, that's their belief too. Mm-hmm. And so it was, then it was just a matter of finding those people that also cared about that. Yeah, I, I remember you kind of moving through all of that. And one of the things that really stuck with me that, couple things, you know, one you just said, which was the realization that you just loved entrepreneurship and that you just loved building companies and that you were, I remember when you told me that it was so clear, <laughs> you were so clear about it. You were like unapologetic. I, I love doing that. I want to do that again. And, and there was something really nice about it because it wasn't um, coming from a place of need or um, like unfinished business or approving yourself again and any of that stuff, which, you know, I know, you know, you um, probably had to decide 
you know, well, what, where am I actually yeah. coming from? What's my come from on this? And, and when you landed, it was so clear that it was like, I just, what I love to do. This is like the thing I love to do the most. I think those were your actual words. Like yeah. there's nothing more I love to do than this. And so that was really inspiring to see. And also just energetically, it was like very telling like that, that he's, this is it, mm-hmm. you know? And then the idea that you could do it all differently. Mm-hmm. You could take all the good, all the bad, all the learning, everything that came from your entire life, but really from your, your career and your business experience at you know, CMM, you could take all of that and now do this thing exactly the way you wanted to do it with the foundational tools, the organizational structure, the people, the passion, the purpose. And I remember you really getting that clarity that the way that you could love this even more is by doing it without all of the friction that existed in the past, yeah. you know, as much as possible. And that was super cool, you mm-hmm. know, to see. Um, and I think it, it, it's not a coincidence that, you know, you are now doing something that is huge and potentially, you know, massively transformative and that you love doing it and you're working differently too. You know, you're able to still do the cave diving project. You're able to still have time with your family. You're able to still travel. That's part of the learning. They could do it differently. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I think that's totally right. One of the great things about this next business has been, it's really the first business where, where what we're doing, or I really started with that. You know, our first business was a consulting company. Definitionally, that's a business about doing what someone else pays you to do. Then our next business was about recognizing a need and building a solution around that. It wasn't a need that we wanted to necessarily to solve, although we eventually learned about the value of solving it. This is the first business where it was really where what itself wasn't a compromise. What we're doing, this belief that people can reverse disease, that we can chart our future, right? That it's an expression of everything. I feel like I've spent this, these 43 years on earth believing, living, learning. The things that is beautiful about it is that there was no compromise even on what we're doing. And in some ways, I feel like in a way that's shedding that, that sense of duty Mm-hmm. where, you know, if you even think about it, is it, what does our business need to do? In the past, it was, well, we need to do the problem that the world wants us to solve, right? And this is, I do think the world, this is a valuable problem for the world to solve. And I think there's perhaps more people that want this to be solved than anywhere, but it started here. Mm. And that's, in a way, the, the w- one of the things that's, that I feel is different about that. That's also created a freedom, I think, to, to really lean into that idea and maybe be even more about the people that are going to be on this journey, why they're there too. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, actually, rather than to look at it and say, that's moving away from this idea of service, to actually lean into it and say, you know what, actually, that's if we can get people that believe in that, in the beauty and the power of what happens when that becomes true, will be even more about service. 
And yet yeah. there was no trade-off. Yeah. And so much <laughs> of this life is learning that there is no trade-off. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was thinking that as you were you were talking about the duty, and that's the irony that in the letting go of the duty, the responsibility of of that, um, you're actually fulfilling on that very thing in a much more profound way. <laughs> right. 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 Because it is coming, you know, from your heart. It's you expressing itself out into the world with love and, you know, unselfish desire, right, to produce powerful outcomes that do ultimately come back to serve other people, which is what the duty is about. Yeah. And so it's a fascinating thing to, you know, to hold on to it, but to let the kind of, I don't know, the responsibility of it and just sort of keep it in the field and focus on the expression um, and let that unfold in a way that you can trust mm -hmm. is going to fulfill upon what it is that you really care most about. Yeah. You know, that's really, really cool to see. And um, yeah, I'm excited to, to watch that continue to unfold. There's so much more that we could talk about. We could do this again and we should yeah. because I am curious to hear more about kind of the mental health aspect of this. And uh, I just spent some time with Gabor Mate and just the constant clarity that I'm getting around like the deep kind of sticky stuff, you know, that gets stuck and, you know, how that ends up impacting our health. We didn't really talk about the cave diving and I can't wait to get my arms around your book. And, you know, I know there's a lot there. Just in the interest of time, I'm going to let you take it and run and, you know, include anything that you want to make sure we talk about on this episode. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Brett, thank you for doing this. It's It's been overdue and I'd love to come back and spend more time. I'm not sure there's any one thing to cover other than to just say, I I think that what you're doing here is important and it was an honor to get a chance to share a, a little bit of this, to share a little bit about my life, but also to to get a chance to express the admiration that I have for the, the other people that are doing this work and are on these journeys with us. And so it's been super fun. Thanks for doing it with me. Oh, cool. You know, one of the things, I actually was just listening to a podcast on my way here and the guest had been on four other times. And, <laughs> and you know, I've had I've had a few, a couple. Yeah, chat. Yeah, chat. And um, chat's one of my favorites, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, and what you just did with Amy was... So awesome. Yeah. She's such a great, oh, great man. person. Yeah. She's awesome. And uh, I started thinking like, first of all, I kind of just made all of this up. And so I can keep doing that and keep creating it in a way that very much like you. And I think it's why um, we're friends is because we like this idea of coloring outside the lines and creating our own realities. And, you know, why not? And so um, I've been getting this download that like, I need to just keep talking to the people that, you know, I want to keep talking to. There's so much more to talk about. And I think people like that. So we'll do it again. Yeah. And I, I, it's been a fun one for me. One of the things I tried to do is, you know, that historically I viewed media and do I need to go out and talk the company and, and do I need to stay on message? And one of the things I, th I really appreciate about what you're doing is that you've found an, an avenue where people don't feel like they need to do that. And this may be the first time that I've come and I've spent that much time on 
myself as a kid. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've been trying to work on is to say, you know what, actually, when asked, I'm happy to share. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that's been one of the growth opportunities for me is to say, you know what, you actually can be a part, you, your story can be shared. Yeah. And the shadows of, of this idea of duty is that you're not allowed to stick out. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to stand up. You're not allowed to. And so the work that you're doing, I think doing this and helping the world collectively, uh, helping adults really, mm -hmm. actually, because kids actually love this. Right. When you, my, my mom, my dad, right. There's a self-centeredness to being a kid that actually is also beautiful. Mm -hmm. And as adults, we eventually, I think we still have some, some of that in us, mm -hmm. but we've, we've been taught that it's not okay mm -hmm. to have your own needs. Yeah. Boy, that's true. And, and, I, and I really get what you're saying and agree. Yeah. You know, I think this is a perfect place to land. You, you stand out, but what you're really doing is showing how you're just like everybody else. Yes. Right? And so, you know, it's similar to the conversation we just had about duty, right? And, you know, what really hit me, and I've seen it, but just hearing you say it today, the letting go. You know, there's so much there in just the letting go that in letting go and sharing yourself, you can stand out, but really just normalize your life for yourself and for other people. Yeah. And it just seems to be a common, you know, theme here that I think is really important. So, yeah. And so, something I think to learn from, from young people. And because w one of the things I think we can learn from young people is that they have the same dreams and desires that we do, usually with better technology or a different way of thinking about it, right? They want to, um, they want to accomplish something, but maybe they want a better company to accomplish it in. They want to dance, but they have better music to dance to. They want to love, but maybe they want a different institution. And same thing with kids right? They actually have the same need that, that we have. They just don't know that they're not allowed to have it yet. Mm -hmm. And so I, I have appreciated the chance to, to explore this with you. And it's been, yeah. a, it's been a, a growth opportunity for me to do that. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing yourself. And uh, yeah, there's so much more. I mean, you know, I could do this for hours. So we're going to, we'll have it back. <laughs> yeah, and, it. Um, and I just appreciate your friendship and you taking the time to share your story today yeah so, thanks thanks brad thank you for listening to the gravity podcast please subscribe to the show at apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts to learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 